בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, always great to be in Miami. Uh, I wish we did this year even more often. We have all this yet to dismay in this year, Baruch Hashem. So, uh, before we start, we're going to continue Bezot Hashem uh, with the Perkei Avot series number 7. Uh, we had one last night, Baruch Hashem, very good shiur, very long shiur, but Baruch Hashem, uh, to be honest with you, it surprised even me that we had so much to say about uh, just uh, one Mishnah. One Mishnah, it's amazing how much Hashem gives us uh, the chesed to give us the insight and uh, the ability to you know, understand what Chazal says and explain it in a, uh, in a way that a lot of people are connecting to. Just one little Mishnah, you have four hours here, almost. So, Baruch Hashem. With Hashem, we'll continue today. Um, but before we start, we'll do a Refua Shlema list. Uh, we have Refua Shlema, this uh, shiur will also go to Refua Shlema to Michel Koto. Uh, Amparo Balufe, Reuven uh, Joseph Ben Rivka, uh, Sarah Batsara, uh, Gladys Nunez, Edin Magorero, Isabel Perez, Josefina Matos, Marcela Matut, Anas Sedeno, Guillermo Solano, Jose Avila, Bill Deutschman, Herb Finkel, Raquel Sandler, Luardes Garcia, Luardes Rensoli, Yoshua Mikael Ben Sara, Sara Bat Levana, Levana Bat Sara, David Ben Esria, and Doris Bajora. Bezot Hashem, they all have Refua Shlema, Refua Tanefesh, and Refua Taguf. So, as we continue with the series of Pirkei Avod, Baruch Hashem, we're getting a lot of great feedback. We're going to also try to cover some uh, recent events, uh, because uh, despite, despite how much we try to uh, influence the world with as much Torah as possible, people still have to deal with the day-to-day lives, and today's day-to-day lives are uh, swamped with politics. Bezat Hashem uh, will also try to cover a little bit of Parashat Shavuah and then Pirkei Avot. Uh, but to give you just a little bit of an idea in regards to this whole issue with uh, with politics, I generally don't like to really talk about politics. I, th- I never really liked it even before Torah. Uh, just because, um, you know, in order for you to be a politician, you have to be a professional liar. Uh, it's, 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 it's just a reality. It's not necessarily... A, uh, a new insight that I created. This is what it is. Uh, you have to, if you know for you to be a successful lawyer, which we'll talk about today, uh, you have to be a professional liar. And most politicians are former lawyers. Um, lawyers and judges and so on. So, and the reason why is because you have to be able to speak out of both sides of your mouth. You have to say this and sometimes do something else. You have to do, so do something else and say something else. You always have to be politically correct. That's why they call it politically correct. It's not a, uh, a compliment to tell somebody they're politically correct. Um, so when you're politically correct, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth and you're doing things that are look appropriate but are not usually appropriate uh, or, or what's needed. And I think that even though it's definitely better for Am Yisrael not to have... Um, you know, Hillary Clinton as the president and her terrorist assistant uh, behind her, Uma, something. Um, it's definitely better not to have them. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say, okay, this is the Mashiach is here either. You know, okay, Donald Trump seems like a nice person and uh, great that his daughter converted. 
And, um, but it doesn't mean anything. It means absolutely nothing. It means that at the time he made a promise that he's going to defend Israel and at the time that he made a promise that he's going to be at the side of Israel and he's going to do this, he probably meant it. But as soon as he became the leader of America, officially Hashem took away his free choice. This we have several sources in the Torah that say this. His free choice is no longer available. Hashem will use him as a tool to do his will. If Am Yisrael does tshuva, then he'll use him to do good for Am Yisrael. If Am Yisrael does not do tshuva, then he'll, do, he'll use him to go and wake up Am Yisrael. And waking up is not usually a pleasant process. I've never heard anybody enjoy waking up. No one enjoys waking up. It's the first couple of seconds are terrible. It's like, ah, I prefer to sleep. You're lazy. You want to sleep for, you want to snooze for another 10 minutes, another 10 hours, whatever you want to snooze for. No one wants to wake up in the morning. It's not a pleasant process. Once you're awake, hopefully you have a pleasant day. But in reality, wake up, waking up is not fun. Same concept with waking up to the truth. Changing your life. Realizing that you're not allowed to work on Shabbat anymore. Realizing that you can't eat at McDonald's. Realizing that you have to separate from your spouse because they're of a different faith. Realizing that you have to leave your synagogue because they're idol worshipping there. Instead of worshipping Hashem, they're worshipping some rabbi. You know, it's, it's a wake-up call. People don't like wake-up calls, but they're necessary. They're very much a necessary tool of Hashem. So I think that when people are actually putting so much, uh, celebrating so much that Donald Trump won and that uh, everything is going to be fine now, uh, I think it's a complete delusion. It's, it's not Da'at Torah, it's not the, uh, you know, it's not the, uh, what the mindset of, uh, of the Torah. Yes, it's definitely better than the other person as far as on, on a rational perspective, but what ends up happening from this point on it's only in the hands of Hashem. It's always been in the hands of Hashem. And obviously, since Hashem saw that mankind is unfortunately stupid and they were most likely going to make the wrong vote, Hashem had to take control. Because at least with, with Donald Trump, it's probably going to look realistic, as if it's his opinion. Whereas if Hashem wanted uh, you know, Hillary Clinton to stop being anti-Semitic, that's more, that's more unrealistic. That's more unrealistic. So, uh, I think ultimately, everyone needs to understand that whatever Hashem wants to happen is going to happen. When people ask me the question of where was God during the Holocaust, the answer is very simple. We made three or four lectures about it. He did it. He was there. You know, it's a, uh, there's no such thing as Hashem doing evil. He's not doing evil. It's not that He created the world to destroy it. But he created the world in order for the world to serve him. So when people get their head around that and realize that the purpose of your life, the ultimate purpose of your life, is to do the will of Hashem, and by that you will benefit the most, by serving Him you'll benefit the most, then you realize that whatever way you're serving Him, whatever direction He's sending you, whatever obstacles and hurdles that you have to go through, that's the will of Hashem, you'll have a much easier time dealing with it. But people that say that, no, listen, I have no interest in Judaism, I have no interest in following this God of yours, I'm happy. 
I have my millions, I have my company, I have my kids, I have everything. I'm happy. And this we talked about yesterday a little bit, uh, about someone that's a rasha, someone that's wicked, and uh, wicked against Hashem, meaning not necessarily a mass murderer, it doesn't have to be a mass murderer, just somebody that's not keeping any of the mitzvot, not fulfilling the will of Hashem. And uh, how could it be? Somebody that's wicked and is prospering. So in last night's Mishnah, it says, never ever get to despair. Never think that just because this wicked person is in a good position right now, that Hashem is not going to punish him. Punishment will come. And it's not only in the next world. It's in this world also. The problem that most people have is that they see the outside picture. They see the illusion. They see the Facebook pictures of how he went on vacation. They see the, uh, you know, the rumors of how he just bought this other company. They see the, uh, you know, the, the news article of how somebody is giving him credit. They don't see the fact that one of his three companies just declared bankruptcy and that was the biggest one. They don't see that one of his kids is autistic, Hashem Rachem. They don't see that his wife is really cheating on him and he doesn't know. They don't see that stuff. You don't publicize that stuff. You don't see real life. So, I think that it's very, very important for everyone to understand that when Hashem wants to run the world, He's going to run the world. And there's, there's nothing you can do to get in the way. Uh, and uh, not you, not me, not Donald Trump, not anyone. The best we can do is... Come to terms with that and realize that it's for our best interest to serve Hashem the best way because we end up benefiting out of it anyway. We have to do it regardless, so might as well do it with love and enjoy it. Now obviously the more you, the closer you are with Hashem, the more enjoyable the process is. But when we're living in a world full of illusions where we think that just because we have a new leader, a new politician and knew this, and knew that, everything is going to be fine, and, you know, people are already, you know, celebrating as if the Mashiach already came, uh, it, it scares me a lot. It scares me a lot, and the reason why is because this is exactly how it was right before World War II. Right before the Holocaust. The Jewish people were at the top of Germany's ladder. They were top politicians, they were top businessmen. They were top Health. everything. Everything was great. Only pro- only thing they weren't a top in is religion. Why? Because eighty percent of them were intermarried and converted to Christianity and Catholicism. Eighty percent of them in Germany, and obviously very high percentages across all of Europe. The point being is that we did everything except what God told us. So God said, "Okay, so." You think you have all the money, you think you have all the power, you're putting all of your eggs and all of your investments and betting it on men. And I wrote in the Torah, Aru, Aru Adam, cursed is the man that depends on men instead of God. And Gavat Adam Teshpilenu, meaning the pride, the pride of man is what Hashem is going to use as a tool to embarrass him, to bring him down. And just like those politicians thought, you know, in Germany, thought that they were, uh, you know, they were doing good for their people by being politicians, well, Hashem made those very same politicians elect and bring it to power the very same Rasha that ended up uh, killing six million of us. Yimach Hitler. So, you know, it's a, I think that 
the fact that so many people are depending on on, uh, on government and on anything, uh, it's just a mistake. And it's very sad to me that uh, you know that people are just mamash like uh, just spending so much of their energy following it at all. I only know it from my students. You know, they tell me about, oh, did you see this? Did you see this? I don't know. I don't see it, but I hear you. I hear you talking about, and you're talking about, you're talking, everybody's talking about it. So, listen, everything is good. I just, uh, I just don't necessarily see it that way. I guess maybe I'm a little bit more skeptical because I also come from Wall Street and we're, you know, we were paid to be skeptical. We were paid to look for red flags. We were paid to look for bad things. You know, for something wrong with the picture, because every time you analyze a company, if you only look at it in an optimistic way, you're bound to fail. Eventually, you know, you're going to see, oh, wait a minute, by the way, this company's cooking their books, they're cheating, and you were so excited about their future and their, the prospects of their new product, you didn't realize that in the meantime, everything they have in the bank is fake, because you were so optimistic. So that's what we're paid to do, and... Um, same concept with politicians. It's no different. It's no different. No different with anything else. And that's actually part of the things we're going to learn in uh, in today's uh, today's Mishnah. So today, no, you can leave it. You can leave it. It's okay. So today's Mishnah, Mishnah Chet, eight, the eighth Mishnah in Perkei uh, uh, chapter one, it says Yehuda ben Tabai veShimon ben Shatach kiblu mehem. Yehuda ben Tabai were introduced to a new pair. Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shatach. These were also two major dayanim, major leaders of Am Yisrael. Yehuda ben Tabai is the one that starts first with his Mishnah. Yehuda ben Tabai Omer, Al ta'as atzmecha keorchei ha-dayanim, Ukshayyu ba'alei adin omdim lefanecha, Yehu be'enecha kereshaim, Ukshayniftarim lefanecha, so Yudah ben, ben Tabai says, when you're serving as a judge, when you're, when you're a judge, you're in a position where you're, you know, you're going to say, innocent or guilty, don't act like a lawyer. If you're a judge, act like a judge, and we'll go over what, what that actually means. Don't act like a lawyer. While the litigants stand before you, Consider them both as guilty. Even though one is suing the other, initially while they're in front of you, both of them are guilty. But when they're dismissed from you, consider them both as innocent, provided they accepted the judgment. Now if you look at it at the basic pshat, if you look at it at the basic literal meaning, which a lot of people try to look at these things, in the basic literal meaning, it doesn't make any sense. Because first of all, you're saying, if you're serving as a judge, don't, be a, don't act as a lawyer. What do you mean? All judges have to be lawyers first. So isn't that a good thing, that I used to be a lawyer, now I graduated to be a judge? So that already doesn't make sense. Then it says, consider bo- both litigants that are sitting in front of you, or standing in front of you, as guilty. What do you mean? One of them is innocent. It must be one of them is innocent. It can't be both of them are guilty. One is suing the other. So either the guy that's suing is the right person and he's entitled to get his share that, uh, that he's suing for, or he's just taking advantage of a situation or a loophole, and really he's the one that's guilty. Can't be that both of them are, are guilty. 
And then it says, but once they're dismissed, look at both of them as innocent. That's also not possible. If you've gotten to a point and you concluded the trial, you must have gotten to a point where one of them was proven guilty. One party won, which means one of them is guilty. So how could you look at both of them as innocent? So this is what we're going to Hashem. This is what we're going to explain, and also this will give us an understanding of why the words of Chazal and even more so the words of Torah. When we read the verses and the five books of Moses and the Tanakh, prophets, all of the the writings, all of the things that we have in the Gemara. Every single word that the Rambam wrote, every single word that any of the sages wrote, you can't be arrogant thinking that you're just going to understand their genius, their divine wisdom, just by simply reading it. Because you know how to make a few sounds by putting the letters together. There's obviously a lot more to it than simply just the words. If you know, if he would write all the details of this Mishnah, it would be 500 books. Not one, not two, 500 books. The fact that we did a lecture for three and a half hours, we still didn't even cover 1% of what we can cover from last night's Mishnah. That's how much knowledge is each one of these Mishnayot. But again, we're limited people, so we can only do what we can. But nonetheless, to think the opposite, that we could just read this sentence over here and understand it completely, it's complete foolishness. And this is what we went over last night, where people have no idea what the wisdom of the sages actually was. And we talked about a few stories of comparing um, the, uh, the wisdom of the sages and, and, and to such how, what level they were. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things I never knew, I only actually uh, got today, enjoyed really learning today, Baruch Hashem. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always... Known that the uh, if you guys remember when I did the um, Torah, science, and ancient wisdom sure in uh, Aventura, um, we had one of the proofs that the uh, sages had scientific knowledge well before science even knew what science was. Um, you know, we uh, one of the proofs was one of the first proofs I think we had in that shiur was that a uh, the sages knew that the world was round. Christopher Columbus definitely did not discover it, and my source was actually even though it also says it in the Zohar, my source was the Gemara, Gemara Masechet Abu But as a matter of fact, I found another source today, the Rambam, the Rambam who wrote uh, Guide to the Perplexed. Uh, Guide of the Perplexed, or Moreh Nevuchim, almost 900 years ago, writes it literally in his book. So he says here, uh, this is just one proof, I saw it, and I just thought it was, uh, was, was just amazing, you know, and this is hundreds of years, this is 300 years, 300 plus years before Columbus was even alive. And it's not like an analogy. He writes it literally. He says, there are certain things that are measured by the criteria of truth and falsehood. And others, of which one speaks in terms of beauty and ugliness. Facts are tested in terms of truth and falsehood. While behavior of human beings is tested in terms of beauty and ugliness. Or being proper and improper. Thus, for example, in relating to a statement that the earth is flat, one would say... That is false. 
and not that it's improper. Or that the statement that the heavens are round is judged in terms of truth and not in terms of beauty. So here, simply, he's telling you outright, through teaching you a concept, a philosophical concept of how mankind thinks, he's giving you divine wisdom here. He's telling you, by the way, you realize that it's obvious that the world is not flat. Anyone that thinks it's flat, it's, it's false. To him, it was common knowledge. To him, it was, of course it's flat. Of course it's not flat. But if you go to high schools today, you go to junior high schools today, you'll see that common knowledge today, you go to even universities today, you ask them, when was it, who discovered that the world is not flat? Nine out of ten people are going to tell you that Christopher Columbus did it, uh, you know, 400 years ago or so. And it's complete nonsense. There are some that write that this knowledge was known by the Goyim that the world is not flat all the way back nearly 2,000 years ago at the times of the Greeks and the Romans. But uh, in general, common knowledge is that Christopher Columbus was the one who discovered it, which is completely false. Either way, you see that this divine wisdom is not just like somebody knowing how to you know, multiply faster than you. Or write a nice book with you know a good you know a way of using words like a politician knows how to twist his words, but it's mamash knowledge that is to them they're saying it in passing. The Rambam was saying this knowledge in passing. It wasn't the key to the point of what he's trying to make. It was just a side argument, a side fact. So same thing with. Uh, Every one of these Mishnayot and Pirkei Avot and every single part of the Torah there's more than meets the eye. There is the plain Pshat the simple meaning and then there is the details that you'll find out once you study them. So let's go over this one. In Be'ezot Hashem we'll get some understanding at least somewhat of an understanding of what we're dealing with here. So Yudah ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shatach, they received, uh, where did they receive it from? They received it from the uh, two Tanaim that we had in the previous uh, week, Yeshua ben Parchia and Nitai of Arbel. So they, again, we continue the lineage where each time we read a Mishnah, they tell you where their source is and it's all in order. They got it from their rabbis and their rabbis, and you know the name, and you know the date, you know exactly where the source is. So no one can say, hey, listen, uh, you know, how do I know this is divine? Where's the source? Maybe it's his idea. Maybe it's his thought. Maybe it's his opinion. No, no. They tell you, listen, he, they got it from Yeshua bin Pachia, and they got, you have the lineage all the way back to Mount Sinai. So that's the first thing. So, Shimon ben Shatach was the brother of Yanai, uh, Yanai's queen. Yanai was a uh, murderous king. Killed a bunch of tzaddikim. Uh, his sister was, uh, her name was Shlomit Alexandra. And among Shimon ben Shatach's many achievements were two major enactments. One of them is that he instituted the Ketubah that we have in marriage, which gave uh, more protection for women. 
And he also established the first Jewish elementary school. So, there's two interesting facts. Um, completely twist common knowledge about Torah on its head. Because most people that are secular that don't really have an idea of what Torah really is, they view Judaism as like a sexist religion. It's against women, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not favorable to women, you know, they they think of us like uh, like we're uh, the, uh, you know, Iranian, uh, you know, uh, kinghood or something like that. We beat up women, we cover them and all of that stuff. So here you see, once you start thinking about what is a ketubah, what is the marriage contract that each Jew is obligated to sign in order to get married? This is before prenuptial agreements ever existed. In essence, actually, prenuptial agreements, they came to being because of the knowledge about ketubot. The ketubah is protecting the wife from an evil husband. If this husband is just a womanizer and he just wants an excuse to have another woman in his life and he doesn't, he's not interested in supporting her, he's not interested in being a good husband, then at the very least, there is a contract before they get married that at least she's, you know, if she leaves, she's not going to leave with nothing. She's not going to be left in the middle of the street with nothing and three kids. If he doesn't fulfill the marriage, he's obligated to fulfill this ketubah. Now, if he doesn't, as we read in the Alakha by the Rambam, a husband that's not willing to give his wife a get, He's not willing to, you know, fulfill the ketubah. So the wife has a right to have a get. To leave, to get divorced. If he's not willing to give the wife a get, according to the halakha, back then and forever, the Rambam says, you beat him up until he says, yes, I want to give her the get. And until he gives it, until he gives the get... He's not considered part of Am Yisrael. He's not considered. You're not allowed to include him in a minyan. You're not allowed to say amen to his blessings. You, he's almost completely going against the rabbis and the Bedin. Somebody like that is not even considered as a uh, as a uh, a Jew. He's considered as someone that has his Judaism on suspension. So it's a very very dangerous ground. So here we see that Shimon ben Shatach, one of the original Tanaim already instituted, already added a law that, you know, everybody that has a problem with Judaism, they always have a problem with, oh yeah, the rabbis added this, they added that. Okay, yeah, look, look what they added. They added things for our protection. They put a fence around Hashem's fence. Hashem says that your marriage is holy. It has to be a holy event, a holy process, but obviously there's wicked people in the world. So the rabbis instituted something that's going to protect the women, which are usually more vulnerable in a marriage, against evil people. And the other thing that he did, is he also started the, uh, established the elementary schools. And this is also something that's very, very important, in, in, especially in today's world, because when you 
look at schooling today, I mean, it's... Even Goyim, even people that are not Jewish, are starting to think that sometimes they're better off keeping their kids at home and homeschooling them than sending them to some of these public schools. Mm-hmm. With all the crimes that happen every day and the shootings, that's become normal. I remember maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, when they first had the shooting, I think the Columbine shooting, it was probably maybe 15 years ago or so, or longer, the whole country was shocked. Everyone was shocked. It was, you know, a couple, you know, kids, a couple of crazy kids killed a bunch of innocent people, miskinim. Everyone was shocked. And rightly so. But you fast forward a little over 10 years. Every other week we hear somebody shot somebody. And it's like, oh, another shooting, another private school that got shot, another public school that got shot, another kid that had, his parents had too many guns, another kid that was able to order guns over the internet. Oh, yeah, it's their fault, it's this one's fault, it's that one's fault, it's this one's fault. Okay, but there's 50 people just died this week because some, some kid killed them because he's playing too many video games. So here you see the elementary, the Jewish elementary schools. It's not saying you know he didn't, he didn't establish elementary schools. It specifically says he established Jewish elementary schools. Why Jewish elementary schools different than anything else? Because if it's Jewish elementary schools, it's going to teach you da Torah. It's going to teach you the mindset of God. And God, even before He gave us the Torah, He gave the goyim, He gave the whole world the seven Noahide laws which all of mankind must obey in order to have civilization, you know, uh, civilized. When we have yeshivas and we have an opportunity to send our kids to these yeshivas, you have to literally do whatever you can to get your kid to this school. Because once he goes to yeshiva, and if it's a good yeshiva where there's, you know, teachers are normal, not one of these horror story yeshivas where the teachers are really just wearing a costume, but they're really wicked people. A normal yeshiva under normal circumstances, you're doing your, your, your child the best favor you could possibly do him. And the reason why is because he's going to learn what God said. And what God said is what he needs to hear. Not just for that time, but forever. The uh, Balaam, you know, one of the major sages... That uh, you know, it's considered that he started the Musar movement. Rabbi Salmi Salant. The story of one time they uh, he saw that his parents are trying to uh, collect money for uh, for the kid to go to school, to go to yeshiva, and he sees that nobody's giving any money. Nobody's giving any money. You know, he's studying, he's learning, he's, you know, he's a Ruach Kodesh. I mean, this is a holy person. He didn't just stop his studying for no reason. He sees nobody's giving any money. He sees the guy, the little kid is doing nothing, has nothing to do. It's afternoon, he can't go to school, can't pay for school, trying to get money. He stops, he says, sell the Sefer Torah. It's like, what? Why? Why do we need to sell the Sefer Torah? Sell the Sefer Torah... So you can give this kid the ability to go to school. It's more important that he goes to school and gets Torah education and not have a Sefer Torah. He said that people spend tens of thousands of dollars just to have their name written 
on a Sefer Torah on the cover, especially in the Sephardic, uh, you know, Kilot, like us, you know, we have our name on the cover of the Sefer Torah. You know, Ashkenazis have the felt, so it's written a little differently. But uh, the Sefer Torah in- itself is the same. Um, but we get all the kavod of having the Sefer Torah, and then you have a party, and the party itself costs an extra few thousand dollars, and the Sefer Torah costs thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars, and the Bekneset already has five of them. It's not like they're lacking. There's really no Bekneset that's lacking. Oh Hashem, Sefer Torah. There's some Bekneset in New York that have over a hundred uh, Sefer Torahs. But yet, you have many struggling families where they can't afford to send their kids to yeshiva. How could it be? How does anybody? How does anybody get like wrap their head around it? Instead of going spending fifty thousand dollars on a sefer Torah, take that same money and help some kids go to yeshiva. Have some kids actually learn the Torah, not just have some book that nobody reads. Learn the scroll. You already have the scroll. You don't need to buy another one. You'll have much more merit from every mitzvah this little child is going to make by going to yeshiva than you having your name inscribed in some sefer Torah. Okay, maybe you're not going to have the kavod in this world, but you'll have the kavod in the next world. That's what matters. But unfortunately, we don't know. We don't do. So here we see that these two sages already, even in the traditional day-to-day life, the laws that they instituted were very wise and very effective and also eternal themselves. We see the ketubah, how it affected our life. We see how the Jewish elementary schools are affecting our life. In essence, when you compare the two, you compare somebody that went to public school versus somebody that went to yeshiva, even though it's no guarantees at all of which one's going to be religious and which one not in this day and age, uh, the reality of it is that it's more likely that the one that went to yeshiva is more likely to stay religious the rest of his life than the kid that went to public school. That's just a, it's a, it's a statistical fact. So, you see that these Tanaim are instituting things that are even have a lot to do with our day-to-day life. But now he continues and he says, it starts with the first issue, the first, uh, what seems like an oxymoron. When serving as a judge, do not act as a lawyer. Now, as we know, judges have to be lawyers first in the modern, in the traditional world. But here he's telling you that if you're going to be a judge at a Bed-Din, you have to understand that a Bed-Din, a Jewish Bed-Din, it's instituting the laws of God, not the laws of man. You're in essence putting Hashem's laws, the divine laws, into effect. You have a huge responsibility. So much so that a Jew is not allowed to go to a secular court. Unless he has no choice. Unless he has permission from a Jewish Bedin. So if, let's say for example... In the old days, you go to Jewish Bedin even with Goim. You sue them and you go to a Jewish Bedin regardless. But in today's age, the Jewish Bedin unfortunately lost a lot of its power, so not everybody holds by it, where you could have two people uh, go to the Bedin, and the party that lost doesn't want to hold, doesn't want to hold to it, doesn't want to keep what the uh, Bedin says. So now the Bedin can't do what they used to do. Back then, they could put that person on cherem, they could uh, beat him up, they could you know, whip him, they could do a lot of things that are, uh, will force him to comply. In today's world, they can't do any of that stuff. But at the same token, if someone by default just decides to sue another Jew and not even try to go to the Bet Din, 
According to Chazal, they can lose their share of the world to come. That's how bad it is. It's considered complete abomination against the Torah because you're giving power to the secular court. You're giving power to the court that complies with basic laws of man versus the laws of God. And as we've seen already, you know, through all the time that we're learning, the laws of man are not always in, uh, you know, in, uh, connected to the laws of Hashem. And also, also, most of them don't even make sense. So, first and foremost, he's telling you that you have to go to a Bedin as a first option. Lechatchila. That's the uh, first thing. But if the other party is not willing to go, then you go to the Bedin. You tell him, listen, I invited him to the Bedin. He doesn't want to do it. We tried once. We tried twice. He doesn't want to do it. I have no other option. If I don't sue him, I'm going to lose the money. I'm going to lose this. So what do I do? They give you a permission to go to secular court. And actually now that you're going to secular court, you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah. Instead of it being an abomination, instead of it being something that could potentially lose somebody's share of the world to come, it actually turns to a mitzvah. How so? Because now you're fulfilling divrei chazal. Now you're fulfilling the, uh, the words of the sages. And fulfilling the words of the sages is considered a mitzvah. So you've turned something that's an abomination into a mitzvah. All you got to do is just go there, try, go through the process, and that's it. But now, so somebody that's actually the judge in these cases, he's telling you first, first and foremost, don't be like the lawyer you used to be. Don't be like the lawyer. Why? Because a lawyer is not looking for the facts. A lawyer is looking to win. It's irrelevant what the facts are. He doesn't let the facts get in the way of his objective. If you come to a lawyer and tell him, listen, like people came to this uh, woman, uh, Uma, that uh, the terrorist that worked for uh, Hillary Clinton, and she bragged about it herself on radio and other places of how when she was a lawyer, a murderer came to her, and even a blind person knew that this person was guilty. She says this. Even a blind person knew that he was guilty. And I got him freed anyway. So a lawyer, this is what a lawyer does. A lawyer is not looking for the facts. A lawyer is looking for the loopholes. A lawyer is looking to win. And that's a serious, serious violation against the Torah. Because the Torah is about right and wrong. Truth and false. As the Rambam says, beauty and ugliness. There's no, uh, listen, because there's a... uh, you knew how to beat the system, it's okay for you to sin. No such thing. So, the lawyer is always going to, you're going to have come to a lawyer, tell him, listen, I uh, murdered. What can you do for me? Oh, I can get you off. Lawyer's going to tell him, I'm going to get you off. Oh, are you going to get me off? I said, listen, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to convince the court that you're mentally unstable. So they're going to send you to five years in a Taj Mahal slash Mental institution. All your friends and family can come visit whenever they want. You could eat deluxe food all day. You're just not going to have the freedom to go drive around like you are right now. But you'll be able to live life. Okay, what happens after five years? After five years, I'm going to tell them you're sick. So then you have to be in a special home care. It's even a bigger Taj Mahal. For the next 15 years. Okay, what happens after 15 years? After 15 years, I tell them, okay, now you're okay. 
and you've already served your time. Because, wow, murder, you're not going to murder, you're not going to, even if you were guilty, what are you going to serve? 20 years. Okay, so you served your time. And that's it, that's how you get away with murder in America. But the guy that did insider trading, the guy that found the secret about some company before everybody else and took advantage of it, he goes to jail for 30 years. The guy that killed goes to jail for 15 or 20 years, sometimes only 5. That's how demented the laws in America, in a secular world in general, it's also in Israel and everywhere else, are in comparison to the Torah. But part of the big part of the fault is the lawyers. Because the lawyers are looking for loopholes of what can I do to beat the system? What's the gray area? They're not looking for black and white. They're looking for the gray area. And this is also the reason why until this day, if you look at any legal contract, any type of legal agreement, any law, 99% of the population cannot read it. It's in strange language, and they use words like the, and uh, you know, and, and all types of uh, heretofore, and all types of uh, you know words that common language no one actually uses it. Even if people that write novels don't use it, and it almost sounds like you're reading a Shakespeare novel. But in reality, it's only to confuse the public. It's only to keep their jobs. It's only to make you think that they deserve the $900 an hour that you're paying them. And it's also to put loopholes in the agreement in case they want to get out of it. No, but look, in clause A slash C, number one, I put, none of this actually really matters. No, it doesn't say none of this really matters. Yeah, but I put it in a different language. It's in Latin. Yeah, but who speaks Latin, Bechlal? There are certain laws to protect us now that they've instituted, that it's supposed to be understandable, but even now, trust me when I tell you, I spent over a half a million dollars on lawyers in my life. It's still not understandable. And even when it's understandable, it's worthless. I even had a situation <laughs> with lawyers where I was supposed to do, have an agreement with some guy that was supposed to invest in my company. And... He was supposed to invest, uh, supposed to buy pieces of my company for, uh, uh, what is it, $4.9 million. And um, in return, you know, you'd get a piece of the profits and so on. I think it was uh, 15% of the company or something like that, 15 or 20% of the company. And if I remember, this a long time, it's over 10 years ago. So anyway, we had a deal. I sent it to the lawyers and I uh, set up the banks to get him the money because he was getting the money from some real estate deal that he had, some real estate that he owned. Long story short, uh, a week before the deal um, was happening, you know, we got the contract and uh, I sent him the contract. You know, it's, I spent... $18,000 or more, maybe yeah, 18000 or more, just on the contract. Just on the contract. Because I'm thinking, who cares? $18,000. I'm getting $5 million in a few weeks. What do I care? $18,000, $80,000. doesn't make a difference to me. And I've already, I was already used to spending huge money on lawyers anyway. With their own retainer every month, it was a huge amount of money. 
Just to fire one guy cost me $60,000. This one wicked guy that used to work for me. But anyway, so $18,000 I spent on this contract. And you know, you figure, you spent $18,000 on a contract, you figure that the guy knows what he's doing. It's not like I spent $18, hey, listen, little homeless guy that doesn't speak English or Hebrew or any other language, just draw some pictures for me and I'll give it to him as a contract. Smiley face with a banana and let's go. No, you spent $18,000. They went to Harvard, they went to Yale, they went to Jahannam, where they went? They went somewhere. $18,000, they know what they're doing, right? So as you would have it, you see how Hashem navigated my world in such an amazing way. Because even to, even to make you fall is So a week before the deal, the guy calls me and he says, listen, uh, I'm trying to close on a, uh, on a deal on another piece of real estate. Do you have, but I'm short a half a million dollars. I'm short 500,000. I don't know, he has to put a deposit of, I don't know, a couple million dollars, but he's short 500000 His money's not liquid and so on, and he's getting the money from the real estate a week later. So I told him, I'll give it to you. Well, what difference is it to me? What do I care? You're giving me $5 million in a week from now. I'll give you the 500000 He goes, oh, really? Yeah, why not? What do I care? So you're just going to give me, instead of $4.9 million, what are you going to give me? Five point four. Like, okay. So I'm going to give you wire instructions. Same day, I wired him $500,000. Baruch Hashem, everything went through. Got the agreement. He signed the agreement. I didn't really review it in detail. Figured I trusted $18,000 legal bill. A week later, day before, or two days before the deal, or a day before the deal is supposed to happen, Lehman Brothers crashes. Lehman Brothers crashes. This is 2006, I guess, 2007. Mm. Lehman Brothers crashes. All banking worldwide shut down. No more lending. No one's lending. Every market is about to collapse completely. The lender backs out, says there's no chance we're lending anybody any money, even though it made sense for the last six months we've been analyzing it. Right now it doesn't make sense. What do you mean it doesn't make sense? You just said you have the money prepared. It's an escrow. You get $25, $30 million prepared to go to this guy. Now you don't have it all of a sudden? He goes, no, we have it, but we're not giving it. No deal. So now there's $500,000 that I was supposed to lend this guy for a week and get $5.5 million or $5.4 million back. Where is he going to get it from? So then I look at my agreement after the money doesn't come and we realize that this Lehman Brothers thing is not going away. It's not a cold. It's not a headache. It's a disease. It's cancer. It's AIDS wrapped into one. The whole financial market is is collapsing. So then I look at this agreement of mine, this piece of paper, eight pages of piece of paper and I realize that my toilet paper is worth more than this agreement. Why? Because these idiots used the, these lawyers for $900 an hour, used the company, my company, as his collateral. Meaning, what he was buying for me, they used it as collateral for the loan that he took for me. They, gave, they used collateral he doesn't own. It's like, I'm going to borrow your car, 
and I'm going to use your house as collateral in case I don't give you the car. This is what the lawyers did in all their money and wisdom that they have. So here, this is Baruch Hashem. All, uh, I'm sure this is not a common mistake. I'm sure uh, this is uh, Hashem working his, his amazing magic. But nonetheless, when you are a judge at a Bedin, you cannot be a lawyer. Because a lawyer is always going to look for loopholes. He's going to look for gray areas. He's going to look for what works and what doesn't work. He's going to look for how you could find the guilty innocent and how you could find the innocent guilty. He's going to look to win. Even if the person is 100% criminal. This is why some of the worst people on earth, that there's no way they can have Yerat Shemaim, are criminal lawyers. Because part of your job is defending criminals. Some of the people you're defending are 100% criminals. Okay, yeah, maybe once in a while you have an innocent guy. Once in a while he's accused wrongly, it's the wrong guy. They just profiled him because he's black. They profiled him because he's Spanish. They profiled him because he's whatever. Fine, there's racism. There's, uh, you know, there's all types of things of hate in the world. I understand. But in reality, if you're a criminal lawyer, most of your clients are criminals. That's just the reality. They killed somebody. They murdered somebody. They raped somebody. You're a criminal lawyer. You're dealing with criminals. And that means your job is to find the criminals innocent. You are a rasha with a certificate. That's just a reality. So you can't, if you want to be a kosher Jew, you can't be a criminal lawyer. You can't say, listen, no, no, I'm only going to take the tzaddikim. How do you know the tzaddikim? Okay, so he has a stray mole and he has a hat. How do you know he's not a murderer? Everybody has a costume. So, first and foremost, when you're a judge, based on Judaism, based on Torah, you look at black and white. Tell the, the lawyer the truth, and they'll twist it. 100%, that's their job. That's the job. So that's what Yehuda uh, ben Tabai is telling you, when you are trying to arrive, when you are having the privilege, the schut, to be a Dayan, know that you and the lawyer have nothing in common. The lawyer you used to be is not you today because today you're only arriving at the truth. You're not looking for winners. You're looking for the truth. What does the Torah say? What are the facts? Now, how do you arrive at these facts? He says this the next point. He says here something strange. Well, the litigants stand before you Consider them both, both parties, guilty, wicked. What's going on? Both of them are guilty? How could it be? One guy is suing the other. How could he be guilty? The other guy is a little homeless guy. He doesn't have anything. How, he, looks, look, he looks like a tzaddik. How could he be guilty? And Chazal is explaining to us here that when the judge, uh, that if you're going to be a righteous judge, you're going to have to review every single one of the facts. Now, if you're going to profile people, well, one guy is secular, doesn't keep anything, he looks like a goy, he doesn't wear a kippah, he wears a t-shirt, he has no respect for the court, he has no respect for anything, but the guy, whatever, he has his little emunah, and he says, okay, I'm willing to go to a bedin. The other guy looks like he's Rabbi Akiva's son. He's got the hat, he's got the suit, he's got the beard all trimmed, everything. Movie star, Hasid. 
So you're like, by default, you're looking at this guy. Of course this rabbi is right and this secular guy is wrong. <laughs> right? How could it be? But in reality, it could be different. It could be that this so-called rabbi is taking advantage of the Jewish law that he thinks he knows and he's manipulating. And a secular guy just knows street knowledge. And he's actually right. He's the tzaddik. So if you're going to be a righteous judge, you have to look at both of them as guilty. Both of them as guilty. And that's why in the old days, they don't really do this anymore, the, uh, the Dayanim used to cover their faces with the talit mm-hmm. while they're judging. So they don't see any of the faces and they don't see any of the characters. They just hear what they say. So that way you can't look at a guy and say, oh, this guy looks like a tzaddik. How could I, come on, how could, how could he be guilty of stealing? This guy looks like a rasha. How could he be such a tzaddik like these people are saying? They're saying here, don't look at them as innocent. Look at them as both of them are guilty. A Hasid Yavitz adds, says, do not act as a lawyer employing your power to debate and persuasion. To justify the litigant whose position logically and instinctively seems to you to be correct. Objectively weigh all only the claims and the counterclaims presented by the involved parties and testimony of a bona fide witness. Now here he's saying to you that the only way you can achieve this, what the Hasid from Yavit is saying, the only way you can look at things objectively is if you look at them, at, uh, at the two people, the two parties, as guilty. Because if you look at both of them as righteous and honest, you're never going to ask them the questions that are uncomfortable. If both of them look righteous, you're never going to ask them, hey, listen, by the way, did you cheat on your wife or not? Hey, my wife is right here. Oh no, okay, I'm not going to ask you. I'll ask you later. Hey, by the way, tell me the truth. When you used to work for this company, did you steal a little bit? You're not going to ask him that because you think he's a tzaddik. Let me ask you, do you cheat on your taxes? You're not going to ask him that because he looks like a tzaddik. So if both sides look like tzaddikim, you can't get to the truth. You cannot get to the truth if both look like a tzaddikim. You cannot give kaf schut. You know, we learned in the previous Mishnah, in Mishnah Vav, where it says, Meaning, make yourself a teacher, acquire a friend for yourself, and judge everyone favorably. So giving everyone kaf schut, meaning the benefit of the doubt, is that if you see a righteous person making an act that looks like an obvious violation against the Torah. You're seeing the local rabbi driving on Shabbat. You are obligated to use your imagination to make an excuse for him because he's known to be righteous, not known to be a rasha. To make an excuse for him, oh, you know what, he's driving on Shabbat, probably there's some, somebody laying in the back seat that he's taking to the hospital. It's pikuach nefesh. But if he's known as a rasha, if you all of a sudden see Hitler in Machshimo start giving out sandwiches to all the homeless kids, then you're obligated to use your imagination of how he's a wicked person. There's something wrong with the sandwich. There's poison in the sandwich. Why? Because he's known to be a wicked person. 
So here the Mishnah Vav, the sixth Mishnah, is telling us we're obligated to use this Kaf Schut, this benefit of the doubt. But here he's telling you in Mishnah 8, contradiction. He's saying, no, no Kaf Schut. So how could it be? One, the later parties cannot, the later Tanaim cannot contradict the earlier Tanaim. The later teachers cannot contradict the earlier teachers. How could it be? It's not a contradiction. What does it mean? He's saying you have to know when to use Kaf Schut. When you're a Dayan, there's no kafshut. When you're a Dayan, there's no benefit of the doubt. Everybody's guilty. He could be the Gdola Dolat's guilty. Or he could be some little homeless guy. He could be anyone. Anyone, everyone comes in. Same thing. This is also why some, there's many thousands of stories about the Dayanim throughout history and how they acted. Where one time there was a story that... Um, on the way to uh, to the court, this rabbi has, you know, this person opens the door for him. He says, thank you. They don't know each other. <laughs> and they continue walking, continue walking. He opens another door for him. Continue walking, continue walking. And eventually he realizes that they're both arriving at the same location. And the person that was opening the doors unknowingly is actually the defendant or the prosecutor in a case. And the rabbi is actually the dayan of the case. So the Dayan says, I must re- uh, excuse myself from the case. I say, why? He says, because he opened the door for me. Which means that naturally, even if I don't want it, I'm going to look at him favorably. I'm already going to like him a little bit more than the other guy that I don't know. Because he opened the door for me. So that's, that's, that's the level of Yirat Shamayim that somebody has to have when they're a Dayan. So they have to look at everyone as guilty, meaning that they have to look at them in a way where they're able to put them, put the people in a uh, uncomfortable situation in order to arrive at the truth. In order to arrive at the truth, now the chida zecher tzaddik veKadosh livracha in zroa yemin. Extending this whole lesson, this whole thing, everything that we're learning here, into something that a person needs to use for himself, as self-judgment. He says, we tend to employ all types of convoluted arguments and hair-splitting logic to justify our own shortcomings. And sometimes our creativity in creating and uh, arguing our own innocence Rivals that of the sharpest lawyer. So this Mishnah is showing us that when we judge ourselves, we should not act as a lawyer and give ourselves excuse. Ah, you know what? It's okay that I woke up at 9.30 today instead of, you know, 6. Ah, it's okay that I only did one Shema today. Ah, it's okay that I only learned five minutes today. Ah, it's okay that I'm going to this restaurant even though it's 50-50 50-50 whether it's kosher or not. Ah, it's okay that I made the wrong bacha. You're constantly acting like a lawyer. He says, don't act like a lawyer. Because a lawyer is unwilling to admit the guilt of his client. And if you're the client, you're not going to be willing to admit that you're guilty. And a person can never improve himself and do full tshuva if he can't face reality of his own shortcomings. Even though guilt is painful... It's the best form of spiritual health.
of improving your spiritual health. So this is great Musar that we learned from the Chida of how you could take this. Obviously, none of us are becoming Dayanim anytime soon. But he's taking this Mishnah and he's telling you, no, 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 this is not just for the Dayanim. This is for you. When you're judging your own actions every day, judging your own actions every week, you're judging your own actions every month, every minute, whenever, however often you judge yourself, don't act like a lawyer and give yourself excuses. And don't be one of those people that only befriends people that give you excuses for you. You know, sometimes we have friends that all they tell us is that we're tzaddikim. Yeah, but you know, I just stole from this guy. Yeah, but you're a tzaddik, you probably give tzedakah. Yeah, but I cheated. Yeah, but you're a tzaddik, you couldn't, you're a big yetzalah. Your yetzalah is bigger than everybody. They're constantly making excuses for you. That's not a friend. That's the satan. So, that's why it also says, in a previous Mishnah, Make yourself a rabbi, and buy yourself a friend. Why buy yourself a friend? Because the only way your friend is going to tell you the truth is if you pay him to do it. Your friend doesn't want to get into a fight with you. He wants to just hang out with you. He wants to enjoy your company. He doesn't want to get into a fight with you. So some of the sages, like the uh, Arizal, and I believe also the Vilna Gaon, and others, um, there's stories about them of how they used to pay somebody on their, you know, one of their Talmidim, or one of their main people, to rebuke them. They would pay them to rebuke them. They say, listen, I know you're not comfortable rebuking me because I'm your rabbi. But now I'm paying you to rebuke me. If you see me do something wrong, I'm paying you to tell me the truth. Because if you don't do it now, because you have respect for me, but now since I'm paying you, it's considered like you stole from me. That's a much bigger sin. So I'm paying you. So it says, buy yourself a friend. You need somebody to tell you the truth. So the Chidai is telling you, yeah, you have to tell the truth. You start with yourself. Tell yourself the truth. Don't be one of these people that give yourself excuses. And also surround yourself with people. They're going to also tell you things that sometimes hurt, but are also going to develop your character. Next point is, after you have reviewed the fact, you've put everybody in an uncomfortable position in order to find the truth, you've already achieved something that most people are not willing to deal with. Most people in today's world are not willing to deal with the truth. This is why we had that whole thing, that whole situation with that guy uh, in last week's shiur, which I actually later find out, found out was an actual rabbi that was arguing with me when I was talking about how uh, the, uh, there's uh, parts of Chabad uh, today that have turned the Lubavitcher Rebbe to a, uh, an idol, some say he's the Mashiach, some say he's God, all types of stupid things that people have created, uh, and uh, not only desecrating their own Rebbe, but desecrating the Torah, desecrating Hashem's name, desecrating Judaism, and Ramash becoming idol worshippers. And even though this has been going on for some time now, no one wants to talk about it. You don't see much talk about it, with the exception of Rav Mizrahi mentioning it. No one else has mentioned it. Because Chabad is a huge organization, it's probably the biggest. It's a huge amount of money. Secular people love them. 
because they welcome everybody. Everywhere you go, every corner you go to, you know you're going to find a Starbucks, you're going to find a Chabad. Which, Baruch Hashem, great. Hashem gave them Siat Dishmaya and to, to expand and be all over the world. And that's wonderful. But I'm not talking about that part of Chabad. Okay, the fact that they try to get people to have kosher food and late filin, that's all wonderful. It's all good things. But that's not the part we're talking about. What we're talking about is the idol worship that some parts of Chabad have turned into. What we're talking about is the parts that are against the Torah. The fact that they're helping people do tshuva or, you know, or at least trying to uh, late filin, you do a few mitzvot here and there, great. But unfortunately... The people running the show today that I know, and I know many of them because they used to come to my office and I know them from other places as well, they're not the same as the founders of Chabad. If you read stories about the founders of Chabad, just from the previous generation, I'm not talking about from 150 years ago, 200 years ago, I'm talking about from 25 years ago, 30 years ago, we were little kids. The sacrifices that these rabbis would make don't even make sense to anyone in this generation. So for example, I give you, they would, there was certain holy rabbis that many of them, I read actually some of the stories in that great book, To Remain a Jew, by Rabbi Zilber, Yitzhak Zilber, Zechat Tzadik Levachar. He sacrificed his life, his life he sacrificed, not that he sacrificed his parnasa. Uh, he sacrificed his life to fulfill a rabbinical mitzvah that he's not even obligated to do, of finding candles in jail for Hanukkah. And his life he sacrificed. He sacrificed his life again in jail to keep Shabbat. Other ones, other rabbis, other Chabad rabbis sacrificed their life to wear tzitzit. Their life. I'm not talking about Panasa, I'm not talking about Shlom Bayit, I'm not talking about they sacrificed their education. They were sacrificed their life. Like they put their life, they ask him, death or wear tzitzit? I'm wearing tzitzit. Death or keep Shabbat? I'm keeping Shabbat. In front of the Nazis, they tell you, do you believe in communism or do you believe in your God? I believe in God. This is Chabad people. Show me one today like that, running a little Chabad house. That's messianic also. Can't. So that's, that's the thing. So the siyat Dishmaya they got to expand around the world is because of the merit of the holy rabbis that started it, that ran it. The Lubavitcher Rebbe himself and many other people before him. But a lot of the people that call themselves his students unfortunately are ignoring reality that many of their brothers many of their congregate members, many of the ones that are actually even running Chabad centers, are actual idol worshippers. They've turned him into an idol. And no one wants to talk about it. Because it's not politically correct, it's not nice, it's not good for the Hanukkah party coming up, and this is what you're going to see. In the next couple of weeks, Be'ezat Hashem, you're going to start seeing Hanukkah trucks. You see, Chabad is always very good at publicizing Hanukkah. Hanukkah and Purim are their big days. You see the truck with the big sign. What's the big sign say? Rabbi is Melech Mashiach. So you're seeing a driving, a, 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 you know, a, a, a driving Chilul Hashem. And the Goyim look at it like, what is this? How is this different than Jesus? They made this guy that died, uh, you know, God or, or Mashiach. And we made the other guy. Who makes them right? 
And they're right. So why isn't anybody talking about it? Because no one wants to face facts. No one wants to be the judge. Everyone wants to be the lawyer. No, you got to give them kafschut. They're nice people. They help so many people. They get people caught. But yeah, okay, great. They're doing all those things. But it still doesn't mean that they're right. Even the Nazis used to say thank you to the Jews going into the gas chambers. That means they're nice. When it's wrong, it's wrong. Le'avdil, obviously the Chabad people are not Nazis, but again, they, if somebody is worshipping a person, they're an idol worshipper. You have to tell them the truth. It doesn't matter if you're going to get donations, don't get donations, they like you, don't like you. You have to decide who your God is. It's either you're with God or you're with something else. And something else has another name. It's called idol worship. There's only two sides, only two options. Even being an atheist is a belief. It's a religion. It's either you're with God or you're with nothing. Because everything else is nothing. It's idol worship. So if you're worshipping a man, you are an idol worshipper and you have, as an obligation, as a Jew, you're obligated to tell people, listen, by the way, buddy, what you're doing is wrong with the stramel and with the hat and with the beard and with all that stuff. Stop it. Stop the nonsense. And people don't want to do this. Why? Because it's not politically correct. It creates battles. It creates this. And they start using the Torah as a tool to defend it. Like, oh, listen, don't you think you're bringing... Like the guy was telling me last week, which I found out was a rabbi, a Shem It's not like a common, uh, ignorant person. It's, it's a rabbi. Came to my lecture and started interfering. It's like, oh, you're bringing so much negativity. Yes, I'm bringing reality. This is what we face. What do you want me to be? The only guy in the Holocaust saying, oh, by the way, we're in Gan Eden. We're in Gan Eden? No. We're, we're in a Holocaust. We're in a spiritual Holocaust. And unless we start acknowledging that we're in this Holocaust, it's not going to go away. And that's the thing that Yehuda Ben Tabai is telling us. You must be a judge for yourself, my friend. You must be a judge for yourself. Not just for the Bet Din, Bezot Hashem. You get to a point, you're a big Tamit Chacham, you become a Dayan. But you have to be a judge for yourself and you cannot be a lawyer. You can't start looking for excuses why this one's right. Well, there's a time and a place to give people kafshut. There's a time and a place to give them the benefit of the doubt. And as the Ramban, the Nachmanite says in his Igeret Rambam, his letter to his son, view others as righteous and yourself as wicked. If someone, if you have more Torah, uh, more uh, Torah knowledge than somebody, view him as he has more merits than you. Always view others better. But he's not talking about at a time of rebuke. He's not talking about at a time of judgment. He's talking about if you're analyzing the public, make sure you analyze yourself first. Judge yourself first. Don't be a lawyer for yourself. If you're in a position of judging others, everyone is guilty at first. Because that's the only way you're going to get to the facts. So after that, he says, but when they are dismissed from you, consider them both as innocent, provided they have accepted judgment. This also doesn't make sense initially. 
Because how could they both be innocent? One guy stole. We proved him guilty. How could he be innocent all of a sudden? He stole. Well, we see, we went one, two, three. We saw it, we saw the camera. It's his face. He stole, that's it, no? According to Judaism, you stole, you got caught, you have to pay double. You stole 100, you have to pay 200. You stole 1,000, you have to pay 2,000. Not like the secular court where, they, court where they send the guy to jail for 15 years. There is no connection whatsoever to Judaism. Okay, he stole, he gives it back. And he pays double. What's jail going to help him? Which is also a process that just ruins mankind. And the reason why is because somebody stole. Usually when they stole, they were in a desperate situation. It's not like the movies where everybody is a professional con man. And they rob banks for $87 million. You know, people they usually steal, they're desperate. They can't get a job. They're in a tough financial situation. They have pressure from the wife. They have pressure from the kids. The kids are starving. They have no imunai and Hashem. What do they do? They put, they put themselves in a bad situation and they steal. They rob a store. They, uh, you know, they steal something. They get caught. Now, the traditional legal system makes them worse because the guy, okay, he stole. And obviously, your natural inclination is that when someone's chasing you is to run away. This doesn't mean that you're right, but it just means that you stole and you're running away. So now, they're going to punish him not only for stealing, but also for running away. You go to jail for five years. I'm just giving an example, hypothetical example. Five years for jail for, for stealing, and ten years for evading arrest. So now the guy, poor guy, he was 18, 20, when he stole. By the time he's getting out of jail, he's 30, 35 years old. But now... He's in the worst shape that he started. Why? Number one, he has a record. The record is public. Anyone that wants to hire him is going to know it. For example, when I would hire people, I would look at their public record. The guy has an arrest. We may have a problem. I, I want to look at what kind of arrest it is. Is he a murderer? Is he a rapist? Or he, I don't know, he, uh, did something that's uh, you know, violated a traffic ticket. What did he do? So now his record is public for the whole world to know. That already puts him in a bad scenario. Already puts him as a bias against him. The next thing is, he's also unhirable. Even if the arrest wasn't uh, for something uh, violent, he's still not a hireable person in most cases. In a professional company, in a white-collar company, you can't hire him. And the reason why is because, okay, he went there as a thief. He went to jail as a thief, 18, 20-year-old thief. But he came out a full-blown criminal because his only company was the murderer, the rapist, and their friends. So what did he do over the last 15 years? He befriended these people. What is he going to do? What is he going to read? What is he going to do? What is he going to read? Chumash? What is he going to do? He's befriending the people who are next to him. So he came there a thief, but now he's a master thief. Now he's a murderer too. Now he's a majnun. Now he's complete lost, we skin. Once in a while, a guy comes out better, or, or, or at least, uh, but it's rare. And the reason why is because you're putting them in the same place, especially miskinim, uh, unless if they're of color, if they're black, or they're Spanish, or anything that's like not the standard whitey, they put them in the worst places on earth. 
But if the guy is white, a hedge fund manager just robbed people for $50 million, no, no, he goes to Taj Mahal. And he goes, no, he only stole $50 million. Even though the guy that stole $50 million ruined like 5,000 lives. Special jail with a fence tall like this. Hmm? Special jails with a fence tall like this. Yeah, yeah, not even a fence. They, they, they play basketball. They hang out all day. So again, so you see the secular system is not only anti-Torah, it's against logic. It ruins people. It mamash ruins people's lives. They go in there for one offense and they come out something else. Now, of course, if the guy's a murderer, if the guy's a rapist, if anything like that, then of course, those people, you should kill them, not just a, uh, arrest them. You should kill them on the spot. No trial. You know for sure they killed. According to the Torah, you killed them on the spot. No, why are you sending them to jail? For what? What's going to happen? All you're going to have to do is spend $50,000, $60,000 a year on them. It costs more to finance a, a person going to jail than it is to fund somebody and to, to have a normal job. You spend $50,000, $60,000 sending him to jail. For what? The guy's a murderer. He's a psychopath. He should not be a part. He already signed off that he's not, uh, you know, he gave up his life when he took away somebody else's life. When he played God and took somebody else's life, that's it. He gave up his, his own right to live. When he raped somebody, when he became one of these sick pedophiles, that's it. But that's the problem. We don't live in a Torah world. We live in a secular world. So the secular world is anti-Torah. Now, we go back to this Mishnah, and he's telling you, listen, in the Torah world, after you've made a judgment, both parties are innocent. Now, how could this be? He says, if they both came to the Bedin, they obviously knew that one of them is going to lose. Both knew that it's possible for me to lose. Even if, I'm, you know, it's possible for me to lose. Everyone that goes to a, a court knows it's possible for them to lose. You can have as much confidence as you want. You still know it's possible for you to lose. Now, they came here knowing that we're going to tell them the law based on Hashem's word. And Hashem's word may be different than their own logic. Which would mean that they would lose. And since they came knowing that, after we've confirmed that one of the parties won, the other party lost, they both officially go back to being part of the public, meaning they're both innocent. Okay, we fixed it. We confirmed you stole. Now that you stole, you're innocent. Why? Because they've accepted the judgment. Once you've accepted the words of the sages, you fulfill the Torah, you made a mitzvah, even though you made a crime. The fact that you paid back, if you stole 100, you paid 200, you've accepted the judgment. You're going to pay back the money, you've actually officially turned the sin into a mitzvah. You paid, you got punished, you paid for the punishment, but now the fact that you paid for the punishment and you fulfilled what the judges said, automatically, you are now back to square one. You're back to being an innocent person. And this is the pure genius of the Torah, where you see that everyone is judged fairly for their crime, and they have an opportunity to continue their life based on their crime. If someone is a murderer, if someone is a terrorist, there's no trial. You kill them, that's it, it's over. 
Someone's a mechalel Shabbat. That's it. According to the Torah, it says death penalty is death penalty. Someone does something that's according to the Torah is death penalty. 36 different sins. It's death penalty. That's it. But if someone makes a different sin, a business sin, they, uh, they cheat someone, they steal from someone, they all types of other things, okay, you pay for the crime, and then you're back to square one. Then you're... Meaning that just like Hashem gave each one of us individually the ability to do tshuva for our own huge sins, we have to give each other. He gave us also a court system that gives us a way to run the world with the ability to give people to tshuva and not making them feel bad for the rest of their life. Hey, 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 that's the guy that stole from Tzvika. Hey, yeah, that's the guy that stole from uh, Shmuli. No, 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 okay, he paid his crime. That's it, it's over. You can never mention it again. You can never mention uh, the sins of a Baal Tshuva to a Baal Tshuva. You can't tell me, hey, by the way, remember when you used to go to the casino? Remember when you used to steal? Remember when you used to go out? You can't do that. Not allowed. So here, as soon as someone has finished court, innocent. So now, the judge must not carry into his civilian life any adverse impressions that he may have subconsciously obtained on either party. He must regard them both as equally guilt-free at the end of the judgment. Meaning that, you know, during the court, you know, maybe one of the parties got a little rowdy, Maybe some things were a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe some things were a little personal, a little too much information. At the end of the case, once there's a judgment, once they've both parties have agreed to comply with the judgment, the judge is obligated to look at them both as innocent, free of guilt. You can't carry on any of the previous uh, pre, uh, preconceptions that you have. The Abarbanel actually has a nice twist on all of this. He sees that this Mishnah is qualifying the axiom, the, the Mishnah of Yeshua ben Pachia, which says that one must judge everyone favorably. Because that, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, because that rule cannot be applied to everyone at all times. That's what the Abarbanel says. So, the litigants, while before, before the court, are to be viewed as wicked, viewing them favorably will be, would be cloud the judge's objectivity. Meaning, you know, you can't view them. This is wrapping up everything we just learned. The judge can't look at them as, uh, as righteous. He has to look at them as wicked because that's the only way he's going to find out the truth. Therefore, while they still stand in front of the court, they should be viewed negatively. Only after they've accepted the ruling of the court shall they again be viewed as innocent. And we must apply the words of Yeshua ben Pachia to judge them favorably. So Babanel summed up everything we just mentioned. That's where we got it. It's not our own original idea or anything. And the key is for us to understand that although reminding ourselves of our own dirty laundry is not fun, for anyone, rebuke is something that exposes the flaws. 
It's something that reminds you of the missing pieces. And rebuke can lead to either peace or war. Now you have somebody in your, in your life, your family, your friend, your life in general, that you see them as sinning. You see them as making something that's against the Torah, against their own best interest, but they don't see it as a sin. You have an obligation of You have an obligation to remind them that they are making a sin. They're not allowed to drive on Shabbat, they're not allowed to eat non-kosher, and so on and so forth. You have an obligation to tell them the truth. Now, once you tell them the truth, you're going to pretty much remind them of what they probably already know. And if they don't know it, now they're going to know. Either way, it's going to make them uncomfortable. Now, if they're a person of truth, it's either going to lead them to appreciate you even more, and it's going to create peace. It's like, wow, you know what? I appreciate you telling me the truth. Like one guy, it's one of my students in, uh, in Boca. They uh, had him... Uh, Somebody asked him to do something on Shabbat. And uh, I told him that, uh, I, I didn't know that, you know, he started doing it. And I saw him one day. I told him, by the way, um, you're not allowed to do that. You're violating Shabbat. And he thought that he was making a mitzvah because what he was doing was uh, he was a security guard for the Beknesset. He was a security guard for the Beknesset. I told me not to be a security guard for the Beknesset. They could hire a guy if they want, but you, you as a Jew, cannot be a security guard for the Beknesset using the walkie-talkie. Can't. There's no there's no psak alakha that allows you to use electronics when there's no 100% confirmation that there's pikuach nefesh, that there's life threat. There's no life threat. You're just sitting there in the middle of Boca, Boca Raton, the uh, one of the richest neighborhoods in uh, in Florida. What are you? What are you? Uh, what are you scared of? What uh, life risk is there? What is there? A terrorist next door that we don't know about? What's there? What's what's happening? Nothing's happening. You're sitting there. There's trees. There's beauty. There's a lake right behind you. What, what are you? What are you protecting against? So using the walkie-talkie, you're not allowed to do it. Now he told me, "Wow, oh Hashem, thank you for letting me know." Because he thought he's making a mitzvah for the Beit Knesset. For the Beit it's not like for uh, some extra work he's making money on. It's free. He's thinking he's making a mitzvah. He's not making a mitzvah. He's making an avirah. And he looked at it as the biggest favor in the world. And he said, you saved my life. You saved my life. You saved my Shabbat. Shabbat is number one thing for me. You saved my life. And he appreciated it. And it brought us even closer and made peace between us. On the other hand, there's many stories of how people, you tell them the truth and they run away from you, they fight you, they argue with you, like the guy from last week. None of what I said I created. None of what I said about people idol-worshipping rabbis, doing things against the Torah, is new information. Everyone knows this. It's no chidushim. There's no new insights. It's just that I talk about the stuff no one wants to talk about, or very few. And even less, publicly. That's what I bring up. 
And he didn't like it. And it created war. So rebuke is either going to create peace or it's going to create war. But one thing for sure, it's going to uncover the truth. One way or another, you're going to know the truth. And we actually see this from this week's parasha. In this week's parasha, parashat Vayere, Vayera, says, Vayera elav Adonai be'elonei mamrev, hu yoshev petach ha'oel kechom hayom. Hashem appeared to him, to Avram Avinu, in the plains of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day. Chapter 18 of the book of Bereshit. Avram Avinu from last week's parashat Lech Lecha, had a brit milah at the end of the parasha, and here this is the third day that he is recovering from this, and instead of sitting in bed, sleeping, no, he's waiting and looking for guests. So the first time we learn about the concept of rebuke is... We learn from Hashem Himself when the angels come to Avraham Avinu and they tell him, Ayesaraishtecha, Vayomer in the Baal. In the verse 9, chapter 18, verse 9, they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Here, behold, in the tent. What are they asking about his wife? What are they asking about his wife for? And the sages say this is to highlight Sarah's, Sarah's modesty. Because a righteous woman is not going to hang out with the guys. She's not hanging out with the guys. Hey, yeah, have a beer. Hey, how are you? What would you do this weekend? What do you think of the game? She became one of the guys. A righteous woman is not hanging out with one of the guys. Sarah Yimeno did not hang out with one of the guys. She was the wife. She's not there. To uh, have a beer, a cold one, with these few uh, guests, which at this point they think are Arabs. So they're saying, where's your wife? So this is, Hashem is highlighting her modesty. Despite the fact that she was the most beautiful woman that ever lived. To such an extent that Chazal say that anyone else that you could ever put next to her, looks more like a monkey than to her. That's how beautiful she was. So now the first thing is, he's asking, where's your wife? And then after that, after, they, you know, he confirms that she's there because they want to make sure that she hears what they're about to say. They're saying to him, you're going to have a uh, son. And in verse 12 it says, Sarah laughed at herself saying, after I've withered, Shall I have again, shall I again have a delicate skin? And my husband is old. She says, listen, I'm old now and my husband's old. So Hashem says to Avraham, why is it that Sarah laughed, saying, shall I in truth bear a child though I have aged? So Hashem changes the truth here, where he says in essence, that Sarah said, how could I have a kid if I'm so old? She didn't say I'm so old. She said my husband's old. But Hashem, for the sake of Shlombait, knew that if he tells Avram, listen, your wife thinks you're old, could create Shlombait problems. So Hashem didn't say that. He said she thinks she's old. But nonetheless, Hashem 
Hashem brought the truth here. He told him, Hey, is anything beyond me? Why are you saying that I, I can't make you... Uh, uh, aren't, aren't I the one that makes you decide whether you're pregnant or not pregnant? doesn't matter that you're 99 years old. doesn't matter that you're 80 years old, 90 years old, 1,000 years. doesn't make a difference. And this is sometimes what uh, people need to understand when it comes to... Um, whether someone's pregnant or not pregnant, it's all in the hands of Hashem. I give you an example, a real life story. People like miracles. I know a uh, woman, very righteous. I don't have a, I don't have permission from her, from her to uh, to say it. I'm not going to say her name, but it's a true story. She converted to Judaism, leaving everything behind. Leaving Christianity, leaving everything. Family, everything. Now, one of the things that uh, she knew now is that now I'm going to you know, try to bring kids to the world. The only problem is that I'm almost 40 years old. Now, as we all know, biologically, women have their clocks Tick, you know that's not. It's not that you can't have kids forever. We're not Sarayimenu. So their biological clock is ticking, and according to the doctors, you're really not supposed to be able to have kids at that age. And even if you're able to have kids, it's not like it works right away. It takes time. So, and she says, "Listen, in reality, until now, I didn't want kids. She didn't even want kids. Now I know it's." going to be good for my husband to bring kids because it's a mitzvah for the man it's, not a, uh, it's an obligation for the man not for the woman to bring kids to the world the woman is helping the man but she's not obligated to have kids the man is obligated to have kids but nonetheless a uh, says listen I don't know if I could uh, have a kid and everyone says I'm too old and it took me a while to convert, and it took me a while to realize, and it took me this, and it took me that. And I told her, listen, whether you are righteous or wicked is your choice. We obviously know what your choice is, because you're converting, righteous person, you're doing good things, and you're also involved in kiruv. You're involved in helping other Jews do tshuva. Even before you yourself turn into a Jew, you're already involved in helping other Jews do tshuva. So aside from having a special love from Hashem, where Hashem says 36 times in the Torah that you have special protection as a convert, you have special protection from Hashem. He's considering you as both, he's your father and he's your mother. A convert has special protection in Shemaim. On top of that... You're helping his other children come back to him. And on top of that, the day you convert, you're officially zero. You're officially zero years old. You're born. You're a brand new soul. So, Hashem decides if you're pregnant or not. And she's okay. She continued believing. No doctors. No special labs. No breaking heads, no nothing. Baruch Hashem, within a couple of years, she had two kids already. 
against all odds, against everybody else's logic, it didn't make sense, but, Baruch Hashem, Hashem runs the show. Hashem runs the show. As unfortunately, this is a unique case because this is a woman that actually had a lot of emunah. She believed that everything I was telling her, and I provided the sources and everything else, everything about, it's 100% from God. So she said, okay, listen, if, if Torah says that the minute I convert, I'm a brand new soul, then the, the fact that I'm 40 years old is not relevant anymore. I'm not 40 years old, I'm zero years old. I'm a baby. And the fact that doing Kiruv gives me special, get special attention from Hashem, then that's what I'm going to go with. And the fact that I'm a convert makes Hashem take special attention to me. I'm going to take that to the bank too. I have three, I have three aces. So I'm going to believe 100% in this. No tests, no special medicine, no special nothing. She just, specific, just traditionally did everything, Hashem. no problems, no nothing. Everything 100% perfect. But on the other hand, I have some people, where they don't have the, the same level of emunah. And right away, without even trying naturally, without even trying naturally, without even needing to, 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 to do anything else, right away they go to doctors, they spend tens of thousands of dollars on all types of painful experiments, and still three, four, five years later, still no kids, Hashem Yachem. Hashem is putting you sometimes in positions where He wants you to develop your emunah, which we'll talk about next. So now the first thing is that Hashem is rebuking Sarai Menu, saying, why did you say that your, uh, your husband's old? Why did you say that, I'm sorry, that, uh, that you're old and you can't bring kids? And Sarah denied it. She denied it, I didn't laugh, and she became very scared. So from here, we learn actually that Hashem knows your feelings. Hashem knows your thoughts. Because she didn't say anything out loud. What, what is written here, it says, Sarah laughed at herself, meaning within herself, in her own mind. She didn't say it to the Malachim. She didn't say it to the uh, angels or anything like that. And also, as a matter of fact, some chidush that I read, as a matter of fact, today, the Rambam says that this whole event with the angels was not in real life. Meaning, the whole meeting between Avram Avinu and these three angels and Sarah was a prophecy. The three people didn't actually show up at his house. It was all prophecy. It was like a, uh, I guess, a vision of some kind. But anyway, this is the first time we learn about rebuke. The second time, it's very interesting, is from Avimelech. We find out later on after you uh, pass a little bit, uh, let's see... Uh, in chapter 20, verse 11, after it's clarified that, uh, you know, when Avimelech takes Sarah because he thinks that she is Avram's sister, and uh, Hashem comes to him, and according to the Rambam, it's not that Avimelech had a prophecy. Because he wasn't righteous enough to have prophecy. But it says that Hashem spoke to him. So how did Hashem spoke to him? He says that any time 
It mentions in the Torah that one of these uh, wicked people, Hashem spoke to them. It means that it's Hashem actually, they had a dream. They had a dream which from there they understood very clearly that Hashem has given them a certain message. But it wasn't prophecy like Avraham Avinu had or Moses had or uh, you know any of the pro- Jewish prophets. Because in order to have prophecy according to the Gemara Masechet you have to be very, very pure person. Very, very pure person. This is the reason why even Bilam, Bilam the Rasha, the wicked Bilam, there's a machloket of whether he was really a prophet or just a sorcerer. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin says that uh, no, he wasn't a prophet, he was a sorcerer. But then one of the other sages says, no, no, he was a prophet for a temporary amount of time. He was a prophet for a temporary amount of time. Not, he was not always a prophet. Before he went against Am Yisrael, he was a prophet. But after he went against Am Yisrael, he became just a wizard. He went like a sorcerer. So then Gemara asks, I believe it's in Gemara Megillah, how is it possible that Bilam, that his wife was a donkey? His wife was a donkey. Not stupid, the donkey. Like really a donkey. How could somebody so tameh, so impure, get prophecy? How is it possible? He says, no. He got prophecy through the eye he didn't have. He had, instead of an eye, he had, he had, you, know, you have two eyes, but he only had one eye. And one side he had a hole. And the only part of his body that didn't sin, because there was nothing there. So Hashem would deliver the prophecy in this empty hole. This empty eye that he had. That's how he got his prophecy, according to the sages. So nonetheless, here, Abimelech, after they confirm and find out that Sarai Menu is Avram's wife, Abimelech says, okay, so this is a person of God. He saved us because Hashem didn't allow Abimelech to even touch Sarah, the holy prophet. And he made sure that he's not able to do it. So what did he do? According to Chazal, and even here, it says that he, he shut off all of their holes. All of the holes in their body. Their ears, their nose, their uh, genitals, their everything. The women were not able to give birth, not able to go to the bathroom. Disaster. So it was a very clear message, something's wrong with this picture. And Hashem specifically told them, the person that you're going against, Avraham Avinu, he's a prophet. He can pray for you. He can pray for you. And Avraham prayed for him, and Hashem healed him. So now Avimelech wants to go, to go into business with this Avraham Avinu. This is man of God. It's a man of God. But his people that work for him are not 100% honest. They're trying to skim a little bit off the top. Like some people think when they work for a rich uh, rich boss, it's okay if you steal a little bit from me. You won't mind. Look, he has this big restaurant. He has a big restaurant. He makes $25,000, $30,000 a day. What is the big deal if I take $100 a day extra? He's not going to feel it. It's tips. Okay, so instead of $100 tips, I got $200 tips. The $100 is not going to make a big deal out of him, Rabbi. Right? He makes $30,000 a day. 
רשע, wicked, can't get into Gan Eden, must come back in the Gilgul and repay back your boss for the hundred dollars you took, for the ten dollars you took, for the one dollar you took. Unless he knows that you took it, not allowed to. Even food, food, if you work for a restaurant, food, unless it's known and accepted in your restaurant that you are going to, the workers are going to eat the food of the restaurant, you can't just decide to eat a cookie because you work there. It's gezer. doesn't matter that it's normal for the outsiders. Unless the boss says, listen, part of the deal is you're going to get a salary, maybe you're going to get some tips from people, and you're going to get food. Whatever you want to eat, eat. Unless you have that deal, you can't just feel at home. It's not your house. It's 100% theft. And the fact that he's rich is irrelevant. It has nothing to do with you. You didn't give him the money. Just because somebody's rich doesn't mean you could steal from him. This whole theory that people have, this illusion that people have where they've idolized Robin Hood. This, uh, this guy, this mythical creature that pretty much stole from the rich and gave to the poor and they make him look like he's a tzaddik. The guy's a rasha merusha. You can't steal from people just because they're rich. So, here, the workers of Avimelech are figuring, listen, Avraham is making a lot of money. So we take a little bit. We take a little bit off the top. What's the big deal? We let our sheep eat from his area, like Lot did. Lot, his nephew. We let, we still a little bit, we skim off the top a little bit. So Avraham rebukes him. He comes to him. I'm sorry, this is not the section. And he tells him, "Why did you put me in this situation? What's the uh, what's the problem here?" This is uh, I missed it. This is the wrong one. the end of the parasha. It's not the place that I uh, noted here. Yeah. Okay, Baruch Hashem. Uh, so, chapter 21, verse 25. So then, then Avraham says, Avraham disputed with Avimelech regarding the well of water that Avimelech's servants have seized. They took one of the wells that really was his. But Avimelech says, I don't, I don't know who did this thing. Furthermore, you never told me. And moreover, I myself have never heard nothing of it except today. So you're telling me that all this time my employees have been stealing from you. Why didn't you tell me already before? Why'd you wait all this time? I didn't know about it. What do you think? I check every one of my wells to see do I own this, do I own this, do I own this? 
He's claiming innocent. He goes, you can't come to me with complaints now. I didn't know anything about it. And as a result, Avram and Avimelech make a deal. And, and Avram gives him seven hues. And Avimelech says, what are you giving me these hues for? He says, that's going to be the sign of our deal. If I say to you, listen, this is my well. A year, two years, three years is going to pass. Maybe you're going to forget. Or what if you die and your son takes over and you say, listen, I don't see any contract. But now that I paid you, that's the contract. Everybody knows I gave you something for this well. So you see here, we learn something critical here. We learn that the fact that, Av- that Avram, it specifically says that Avram rebuked Avimelech. Avimelech was a king. But he rebuked him, he told him the truth. But since Avimelech was willing to listen to the truth because he was more interested in partnering with Avram, the man of God, than he was having all this kabod. Because he saw that every time he's partnering with, with Avram, he's, he's profiting, he's making money off of it. So he's willing to accept the truth. He sees the benefit of listening to Avram. So you see that in this particular case, rebuke led to uncovering reality, which made Avimelech uncomfortable, but eventually led to peace. And even before that, the the verse that I mentioned before in chapter uh, 20, verse 10, when Avimelech came to Avram Avinu, and he says to him, why did you put me in such a bad situation where you uh, told me that your, uh, your wife is really your sister? And look, our eyes were shut, our ears were shut, our genitals were shut. Hashem came to me in a dream, tell me that I'm going to die if I touch her. What did I do to you? That you're putting me in a situation. And then Avraham Avinu tells us the secret to all of this. The secret to making sure that you're always going to be a judge and not an attorney, not a lawyer, for others and for yourself. Making sure that you're always going to look at things based on facts and not based on your heart. And make sure that you're able to move on, that after people pay their dues, you're able to move on forward. And the secret is, ויאמר אבי מלך אל אברהם, מה ראית כי עשית את הדבר הזה? ויאמר אברהם, כי אמרתי רק אין יראת אלוהים במקום הזה, והרגוני על דבר אשתי. And Avi Melech says to Avraham, what did you see that you did such a thing? Like, what did you put me in such a bad situation? So Avraham says, because I said, there's... This place has no fear in God. And they will slay me because of my wife. So what does one thing have to do with the other? What do you mean? There's no fear of God in this place and therefore they're going to kill, my, they're going to kill me for my wife? What does one thing have to do with the other? So here Avram is teaching us something. He's saying, if someone fears God... They're going to listen to him. If someone fears that Hashem is watching everything we do, 
listening to everything we say, writing every action that we've made, good and bad, and eventually he's going to show us this book at the day of judgment, and we're going to have to pay the bill for it. We're going to think twice before we make any action. Before we create some idol worship. Before we turn into false religions. Before like the book of Isaiah says that we got to such a bad level that they started worshipping bats. Bats. Bats and in, uh, in, uh, I think it was raccoons. Bats and raccoons. Like, why is he mentioning this? Why doesn't he mention this? They, they worship some uh, statue. They worship some, uh, I don't know, they worship them some uh, Buddha. They worship some rabbi. Why is he mentioning bats? He says, because you know that a bat is a really ugly animal. It's not like nobody likes bats. Only in the movies they like bats. But in reality, nobody likes bats. Nobody has a pet bat. It's a diseased animal. It's not a pretty animal. It's gross. He says that they made the ugliest thing, the ugliest creature into their God. Obviously it doesn't make any sense. How do you get to such a point? How does Am Yisrael get to such a point? How do people that are part of the chosen nation get to such a point where you've turned something so ugly into a God when you have the most amazing God there is, there is the only God there is. When you don't go with Da'at Torah, when you don't go with the teachings of the sages, when you don't build your emunah and your overall system, your overall mindset on a foundation full of Yirat Shamayim, a foundation that's based on fear of the Almighty, awe of the Almighty, you're not far away from the idol worshiper that made the bat into a god. You're not far away from becoming a murderer according to Avraham Avinu. He says, listen, I came to this place and as soon as I came to the place, instead of them asking me, you're in a desert, do you want a drink? Do you need some food? Do you like some rest? What do they do? They ask me, hey, who's the hottie with you? Who's this pretty woman? So I say, instead of them asking me if I need food, I'm in a desert. I'm not at a, uh, some, a, uh, you know, a uh, vacation resort. Middle of the desert. People are dying in the desert. They go in and they never leave. Instead of them asking, you want some water? You want some food? You want some anything? They ask me, who's this woman? Yeah, you care about the woman that's with me? Shows, you have no yirat shamayim. All you care about is women. All you care about is desires. And people that only care about desires, they only care about this world. Which means they don't believe in the next world. Which means they don't believe in a creator to the world. Which means that they think that no one's watching. They can do whatever they want. And someone who thinks that they can do whatever they want and no one's watching, no one's writing, no one's listening, anything that they're doing, they're one step away from being a murderer. And they'll kill me for my wife. That's why I said she's my sister. Because I knew that if I said she's my wife, they'll kill me. They'll say, listen, if she's his wife, if she's his sister, then we could just take her. Give him some kavod, give him some money, make him feel good, he'll give us no problem. But if she's his wife, we can't take her. So what do we have to do? We have to kill him, then we can take her. Why? Because they have no Yirat Shamayim. So Avraham Avinu is teaching us here, listen, without Yirat Shamayim, the foundation of Judaism, you have nothing. 
And then Hashem says, okay, okay, it's good of Avinu that you've rebuked others and tell them, listen, they have to have Yad Shamayim. But I want to see what you have. Because if you're going to rebuke people, and if you're going to try to get people to the truth, you have to live the truth. You can't be a hypocrite. According to the Gemara, someone who says the opposite of what he does himself, it's better that he would choke inside his mother's womb. That's how bad they treat it. They say, you can't be a hypocrite. You say you have to keep Shabbat, to other people, keep Shabbat. Say you have to eat, eat kosher, you have to eat kosher. You tell other women, listen, be modest, you have to be modest. You can't walk around with a tank top telling other women you're, you should be modest. Oh, listen, you should cover your hair, but you don't cover your hair. Oh, listen, you should be loyal to your husband, but you have eight boyfriends. Doesn't work. People going to think you're making a joke of the whole thing. Which you are. So here, Hashem is telling us, listen, I want to make sure that it's not just Avraham. And if it wasn't written, I wouldn't be able to say it. It's not just Avraham saying it. Why did Avraham Avinu become Avraham Avinu? Because he didn't just say, he did. First, he told Abimelech, listen, there's no Yerat Shemaim here. That's why I lied. But then Hashem gives him a test. Hashem gives him a serious, serious test and He says, bring your son, your only son, the one you love, Yitzchak, as an offering to me. So Avram Avinu wakes up extra early in the morning and goes to the mountain of God to put his son as a korban for Hashem. Against all logic. This doesn't make any sense. This is against everything Hashem has told him until this point. Hashem told him that your descendants are going to be very fruitful and they're going to be everything. How are you going to kill them then? You're ending it right now. They're going to come from Yitzchak. How are they going to come from Yitzchak? I'm going to kill them right now. Tell all these these idol worshippers to stop killing their kids. But you're making me kill my kid. Nothing, nothing makes any sense. Famavinu, quiet. He goes, he does it. Of course, as we know the famous story, the angel of God stops him. Vayomer Avraham, Avraham. Vayomer Hineni. Vayomer al tishlach yadecha el anal. Vayal taas lo meuma. And he said, uh, and an angel of Hashem called to him from heaven and said, Avraham, Avraham. And he said, Here I am. He's got the knife about to chop his head pretty much. And Yitzchak the Tzaddik, what is he doing? He's not scared like this. Trying to look away. What is he doing? He's, like a, yeah. uh, he's sticking his neck out. No, Abba, make sure, make sure you do it. And tie me really tight so I don't let the Yetzirah beat me and I hit you. The angel of God calls Avram and he says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, nor do anything to him. 
For now I know that you are a God-fearing man. Since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. So here, Avram Avinu becomes Avram Avinu. For now and forever. Why? Because he didn't only say to Avimelech, Hey, you should have Yirat Shamaim. He didn't just say to Avimelech, Hey, you should judge favorably. He didn't just say to Avimelech, Hey, you should be a judge and not a lawyer. He didn't just say. He practiced. Because Hashem is telling him, Right now you've reached the highest level of Yirat Shemaim that there is. Now I know you're a God-fearing man. Before you were doing business and he told other people, listen, you should worship God. You converted other people. As in the Gemara, Masechet Chagigah, in uh, several other places, it says that Avraham Avinu was, anytime they mentioned Gerim, all the converts, have to say, Bnei Avraham. Everyone is the sons of Avraham. Why? Because Avraham Avinu is considered the father of all converts. Because that's what he did his whole life. He converted everyone. So when he was telling people, listen, you should worship God, and it was convenient, maybe, or you should have Yirat Shemaim, because then you'll be an honest person. Oh, here he says, listen, I'm putting everything on the line. Yes, he sacrificed even his own life when he jumped into the fire. He jumped into the fire at three years old when the whole issue mm-hmm. with Nimrod, Rasha. He jumped into the fire, but that's still his body. It's easier to sacrifice yourself than it is to sacrifice the thing that you love most. Most parents would die for their kids. It's easier to sacrifice themselves. So here Hashem is giving him the ultimate test. His son, the one he waited for for a hundred years. The one that's is pride and joy, the one that's the confirmation of everything. He says, Now, after you were willing, able, and happy to sacrifice your everything for me, now I know you have your mind. Now I know you have fear of God. Now I know you're not just saying it. Now I know that when you judge, you're gonna judge favorably when it's necessary, and you're gonna judge everyone as a wicked person. When it's necessary. And when everything is done, you're going to look at everyone as innocent. Just like the Mishnah says. And I think that if we can apply even 10% of what we learn to our day-to-day life, we'll, also, we'll already see uh, a huge milestone in difference in our business success, in our Shlom Bayit success, and ultimately in our Yirat Shamayim and connection to Hashem. Because we're building it on a real foundation. A foundation that's signed off by God. This is not my opinion. This is not some rabbi's opinion. This is what God wrote in this Torah. He says, you want to connect to me? Your foundation has to be based on Yirat Shamayim. You cannot get to Emunah without Yirat Shamayim. You cannot get to Ava, love of Hashem, without Yirat Shemaim. You cannot get the connection to Hashem at all 
without Yirat Shamayim. It's not available. It's not possible. Because in order to love something, you have to know what it is. And as soon as you know even an inkling of what Hashem is, and how much you depend on Him, and how much you owe Him, and how much you must serve Him and do everything that He wants you to do, which is for your own benefit anyway, immediately you get scared. Because everything is on the line every minute. Everything is on the line every minute. Every single minute somebody can either earn their Olam or lose it. One word can make somebody earn their Olam or lose it. You could say to somebody, listen, you should come to the Shil Torah. The guy comes to the Shil Torah, he listens to the Shil Torah, gets a shock of his life. Starts keeping Shabbat, starts keeping kosher, starts laying tefillin, leaves the non-Jewish uh, girlfriend or boyfriend, does tshuva, builds a Jewish home, becomes a nice kosher Jew. You just earned yourself a long about, my friend. On the other hand, your friend wants to go to the street, tell him, nah, let's go to the bar instead, hang out with some girls. That shiur was going to be the one that was going to help him do tshuva. And now because of you, he missed it. And because of you, he's going to get punished for it. And that was his last shot. Because as soon as he got to that party, he met the wrong person, and the wrong person wasted the next 15 to 25 years of his life. You, my friend, are in serious, serious trouble when you get to Shemayim. One word. What is this? Not, not talking about, listen, you have to build a whole organization against God or Chazm Shalom. One word. Come to the Shiut Torah, go against the Shiut Torah. Go to the bar instead. One word. If you, what's, what's nothing. If you have a, a solid foundation where you realize that Yirat Shamayim is a necessary tool, a necessary feeling, a necessary, it's as necessary as breathing then you already have a good foundation. But if your foundation is built on illusions, if your foundation is built on some teachings that has no backings whatsoever, we're all supposed to sing Kumbaya and everything is great, even though we're living in, uh, in uh, surrounded by poison, then my friend, as soon as reality checks, you're going to fall. And that's the one thing that you see a lot where there's many times people that tell you, listen, I'm happy, I'm happy, I ha- I'm happy with my... I'm happy with my life, I got money, I got this, I got that. Well, I don't have God, but I have everything else. And they seem happy. They seem happy. You see them smiling, you see them on TV, you see them driving fast cars. They seem happy. And they may very well be happy superficially mm-hmm. until reality. Until there's a reality check. Until there's death in a family, until they lose money, until their spouse leaves, until one of the kids fails, until whatever they're basing their entire happiness on fails them, they're happy. 
So if somebody is happy because he has so much money, the minute he loses money, he wants to kill himself. He has no purpose to live anymore. If his whole life was based on money, all day he's doing, the only tefillah he's doing is for Padasa. For Shlom Bay, he doesn't care. For, uh, you know, for connection to Hashem, doesn't care. Gemara doesn't care. Tosfot doesn't, nothing, he doesn't care. All he wants is Panasa, Panasa, Panasa. As soon as the Panasa is gone, as soon as there's a depression, financial situation is horrendous for everyone, or just for him, it doesn't matter. Someone steals from him, his whole world collapses. He officially loses the purpose of his life. He wants to kill himself. Or someone, this usually happens with young people, their whole life is based on their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend. Oh, he's my life. Oh, he's my, she's my life. Okay, well, as soon as she tells you, listen, you're not my life. I have somebody else that's my life. You want to kill yourself. You have nothing now. Or someone that depends on their kids. Oh, my kids are my life. They're everything. They're this, they're that. Okay, the kids, one day they grow up. They leave the house. They get married. Absolutely. They leave home. We're not talking about bad things. We're talking about them moving on with their life. Okay, you live in America. Him and his wife want to live in Canada. He wants to live in Canada. What are you going to tell him? No. He has his own life. He has his own kids. He's got to move. Oh, what am I going to do with my life anymore? My kids are not home anymore. What do you mean? Why is your whole life depending on your kids? Hashem didn't bring you to the world just to have kids. He brought you to the world to have your own life also. If something happens to the kids. I know a woman that just recently lost a kid. Young boy died. He's 24 years old. Mom is complete atheist. Believes nothing. Has fortune of money. And a meaningless life. Because right now she feels like she can't wait to die. Because her whole life was her kids and the material world. So as soon as something was taken, as soon as it was shaken up, there's nothing else to hold on to. There's nothing else to hold on to. So here we understand that in we have nothing that we can rely on other than our Father in Heaven. Meaning, if you want to have something to really rely on, you want to have something to really develop a relationship with, you have, you want something that to really, you could depend on at all times that's never going to go away, you must develop your relationship with Hashem. Your Creator is the only relationship that you know is going to exist forever. And the type of relationship it's going to be depends on your actions. If your relationship is based on Yerat Shamayim, you can only go up from there. You can only develop it to be a good relationship. If your relationship is based on some other nonsense that somebody told you that has no sources, then it's a superficial relationship and you believe in something else. You don't really believe in the God of Israel. But if you believe in the God of Israel, you can have a phenomenal relationship. And obviously, it, even that relationship is going to have its ups and downs. Sometimes you're more connected to Hashem. 
Sometimes you're less connected to Hashem. You have a test. You think he's not watching, even though he's watching. All of us have tests. And we're not tests. But it's always there. It's always there. When I'm crying, he's with me. When I'm happy, he's with me. When I wake up, he's with me. When I go to sleep, he's with me. When I'm reading, he's with me. When I'm confused, he's with me. When I'm crazy, he's with me. When I'm angry, every time. He's always with me. Even when he says he's not with me, I know he's with me. Because I know that when I'm angry, he says he can't be in the same room as someone that's angry, I know that he's watching. He's going to write it in the book. On this day, on that day, you were angry. It was considered idol worship. I'll have to pay the bill. Even then it's with me. He's with me. If we have Yerat Shemaim, we can build eternity. No Yerat Shemaim, you close all the books, and there might as well be math books. So Bezot Hashem, we learn from Avraham Avinu, we learn from the sages and Pirkei Avot, we learn from the elders, the prophets, the sages, that all of these things are very logical. Every single Mishnah is logical. Once you actually understand what it says, it's logical. But the only way to implement any of it is go start at the foundation and realize, hey, this Torah came from God at Mount Sinai. He gave it to Moses. God is real. He's watching. He's listening. He's writing. Everything counts. The mitzvah and the avera. Once you realize that Hashem is always, always there, that's the beginning of Yirat Shemaim. And you build from there, Yirat Hashem. Any questions? I know there's your questions. I want to give you a minute. Give you a minute. Does anybody on the phone have any questions? Okay, we said. Amen. Amen. Thank you.